Welcome to another episode of Axe of Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Cat. It's finally summer here. I had to turn off the air conditioner so we could record. It sure is, uh, though it's a little cooler than it has been in the past. During E3 week, it was a an actual like furnace in my house. It was ridiculous. Yeah, and over here, I remember that week it was it was cold over here. It was freezing. We switched weathers for for a week. That was great. <laughs> well, I will soon be experiencing different weather because next week I'm not going to be here, Nadia. I know, but where are you going? I am going to France. Wow, have you ever been? Uh, yeah, a few times. I really enjoy France, actually. But I am going to go see the U.S. women's team, hopefully playing in the semifinal at the Women's World Cup. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's really exciting for you. Yeah, but knowing my luck, they're totally going to lose tomorrow as of this recording. Uh, <laughs> and it'll be like, well, guess I'm going to go watch Czech's Notes. France and Germany? <laughs> Well, at least you'll be watching somebody, and it'll be pretty good soccer. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue too much. I was like, oh, no, I'm going to go watch a really cool soccer game. Darn, you know, so. Were you planning this whole time to go to, to France, or was it a last-minute yes. thing? Uh, No, back in January, I was hanging out with some friends in London, I know, and <laughs> I know they were like, we're going to the Women's World Cup. You should come along. And we were like, that sounds fun, actually. And being one of the few humans of our generation with a modicum of disposable income, we decided that we would go. So Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I've never been to France. Oh, France is rad. Uh, they have really good food there, beautiful countrysides. Uh, we'll be kind of toward the south of France as well, and that is just the geography and everything is just gorgeous there, putting aside the fact that it's near all of those vineyards and whatnot. It's going to be pretty hot, though, so uh, prepare yourself. I mean, it's going to be pretty hot everywhere. It's the summer. <laughs> you sound like my mom. It's the summer. Get used to it. Unless you go to, like, Australia or something, because it's the winter there. That's true, but it's still pretty hot. But, yeah, we got a lot to cover in this episode. We're going to talk a little bit about, a little more about the Pokemon Masters reveal that was, uh, well, it was of last week as of the release of this podcast, but this mm-hmm. morning as of the recording of this podcast. We're going to have another Final Fantasy VII update. We're going to do a Bloodstained review. And we're going to talk about Slay the Spire, a game that Nadia and I have both been playing and have been meaning to do a review of. We are not doing the console RPG quest this week. My sincerest apologies. But we will be doing an episode next week. And we are going to have a special guest host filling in. Surprise. And it won't be Anthony this time. It'll be somebody else. Nope. So Anthony's your buddy. He always uh, does a good job with the guest hosting duties on this podcast. Yeah, he does. We usually have a very good time together because we're, our history goes back a long way. Also, we have a little bit of a mea culpa to do for this, uh, for our last <laughs> console RPG quest. So Yeah. <laughs> All right, but we'll get to that in the mailbag. In the meantime, if you want to reach out and yell at me and Nadia about missing big game series in our console <laughs> RPG quest... Can I recommend that you send us a DM uh, on Twitter at the underscore catbot or at Nadia, uh, sorry for Nadia, she is at Nadia Oxford, or you can reach me on email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Make sure to follow USGamer on all of the different social channels as well. That's also USGamerNet. 
We also have a newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday um, for Acts of the Blood God, in which we cover all of the RPG news and have a nice little essay. Nadia, what did you write about this past week? Uh, this week I actually wrote about um, whether you prefer, and that's like a general you to the world, do you prefer uh, RPG protagonists who talk or ones who are silent? And I said I kind of prefer a little bit the ones who talk, and that's probably because I've been playing a lot of uh, Trails of Cold Steel, and um, I find I like Rain quite a bit. I think he's a really kind of a neat character, and I generally like characters like him who are, you know, kind of good leaders, a little bit soft-hearted. Uh, like for example, I really like Shulk from from Xenoblade. I think he's a real dork, and I just find him very endearing. So I, I like that kind of character, and not to like dump on silent characters because there are certain silent characters i like a lot too i like silent characters especially when they're inexplicably charismatic yeah once one example i cited of a charismatic silent character is link from uh breath of the wild and it's really interesting the way they made him charismatic was through the answers he gives to people like uh one example i i mentioned was um when you go to the gerudo town there's a bar where all the, the Gerudo ladies hang out and drink because they're really cool. And uh, one of them says to Link, you know, are you a little bit old? Uh, are you a little bit young to be here? And he, uh, one of the answers you can give is, I'm actually 100. <laughs> and I thought that was great. <laughs> I always liked in Persona that the character, the main character is is silent and seemingly kind of with, withdrawn, but everybody just destroying themselves at him or her, I guess, in case of Persona 3 Portable, to be their best bud in high school. It's like, wow, there's just some kind of magnetic attraction to you. Yeah. <laughs> dot, dot, yeah, dot. I love that. Um, they, I think they did a really good job with that in 5 in particular, because uh, I guess because 5's uh, protagonist is in a lot of trouble when the game starts, and so you kind of feel uh, a little bit protective of him, even though like, I guess it's also compelling how he breaks out of that shell so early in the game and it becomes uh, Joker and the Phantom Thief, you know? Yeah, they make him instantly, uh, like you're rooting for him immediately because everybody's yes. dumping on him constantly and assuming the worst. Pretty much. Like, hey, you're going to live in my attic and you're not allowed to come out because you're bad. <laughs> yeah, you live in the attic. Don't go outside. I assume that you're terrible. Exactly. Do I get food? No. Do you like coffee? Yeah. That's all you're eating. And, and that makes it much more satisfying to watch those relationships steadily build up, where, as opposed to Persona 4, which admittedly I love that game as well, but it feels much more like everybody, the universe, as it were, is bending to the, to the character in question and everybody just loves them. Yeah, it's very much a small town thing where everyone wants to be your friend immediately, which is fine. Like, it's, they're just very different games with very different tones and uh, they both work. Anyway, you won't find these articles on US Gamer, so if you want to read them, I suggest that you subscribe. You can find the subscription info on the website, and you will get a nice little email from US Gamer and the Blood God uh, every single Wednesday. Okay, Nadia, let's continue. Uh, the big news as of the recording of this podcast Pokemon Masters got an eight minute reveal. You yes. wrote up a little bit about it. You watched the full trailer. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think it looks like a lot of fun. I do intend to play it. Uh, I'm actually really impressed that they, uh, I mean, four minutes of that eight-minute trailer is just like this unique animation they made for this reveal trailer. I think that was a really good idea. It looked really cool. Yeah, it was very fan servicey. Just like, yes. oh, I know that character and that character and that character. 
Yeah, it was pretty good. And like I was saying on Twitter, it's like, oh, there's a, a one of the teams is Lusamine and her kids. So now we've got team dysfunction going on here. So they didn't explicitly say whether it was a Gashapon game, right? They didn't explicitly say that, no. I think the impression I get is very much like a Fire Emblem Heroes where you'll be drawing your uh, trainers. Although they're, we're talking about teams of three versus three, so I'm not sure how it's going to work, but I'm almost certain some sort of Gashapon is involved. Well, if it's uh, building a team, then it's going to be like, you know, draw draw the characters, draw the trainers, and ah, right. put the build a team with them, right? And yeah. the you'll want to try and have the right Pokemon as a, a good combination to fight other people. Like, it's classic Gashapon uh, mechanics. Yeah. yeah, they already mentioned, like, the way it works is that every uh, trainer is bonded to a particular Pokemon. So, you know, Red has Charizard and, you know, Lance has Dragonite. And some Pokemon and trainer teams, some are, you know, strike teams and others are defense. So kind of making that that well-balanced team, that will take some some doing and some, you know, probably some pennies as well. I'm betting Claire will have a Gyarados. Yeah, I mean, that stands to reason. Yeah, I'm betting that I'm going to put way too much money into this game trying to get a lineup of my favorite trainers. Yeah, and God help us when they come up with the costume uh, variants because you know they're going to. <laughs> and they're going to be so rare and they're going to have like a 3% chance of actually drawing them. And you're just going to keep getting bug catcher over and over again. And that one kid who likes shorts. <laughs> I, the Joey, poor Joey. There's, no, no, sorry. That was um, Joey. With Joey is Ratata. It's going to be on your team forever. And it's just like, <laughs> all well, I, I want is Cynthia. I say that. But then like with the uh, Fire Emblem Heroes, I wound up with like 50 Croms and like oh. 50 Lucinas. Yeah, there are characters you're like, oh, Marth, that's really good. And then later on, you're like, Marth is uh, not that Marth. good. God damn it, Marth, go away. Uh, yeah, no, you don't actually want Marth at a certain point. You know, it feels weird to play Gachapon games because you know that there's going to be power creep. And in a year, those characters that you thought were so good, not so good anymore. No, nah, they go to the trash bin after a little while. Yeah, I can already feel my... I've got a really strong team in Fire Emblem Heroes, and yet I can almost feel them becoming completely invalidated by how strong some of the characters are now. Yeah, it's actually funny you mention that because I'm actually playing, I'm still playing Puzzle and Dragon, like it's something I've played for years, and I have a team right now that they had a promotion going on with Monster Hunter. So I have like this, like these monsters from Monster Hunter, like big ass black dragon, whatever he was called. And uh, originally they were so powerful, but now it's like, you know, they're already turning into mush. You know, I have such a conflicted relationship with Gachapon games because I'm going to play Pokemon Masters. There's no doubt right. about that. And I'm sure I'm even going to enjoy it to a certain extent. But I find them to be such a bad biz a gameplay model because they're basically predicated on endless power uh, power creep. Yeah. And I don't especially like that in gameplay design. I, I don't like the idea of, like, they just keep having to make more and more powerful characters in order to make them more and more desirable because it, it, it's just impossible to make a potentially particularly balanced game and the mm -hmm. worst thing is the developers don't really even care about making a balanced game they only oh, no. really care about making money uh constantly having a, that constant revenue stream and uh, i just want to roll my eyes at it yeah yeah i know what you mean and yet i'm going to be probably going to be there day one downloading it but no I, I know what you mean it's just it's not so much about like an actual challenge it's about getting ripped off until you pay up again 
Yeah, pretty much. I I just hope that they take a lesson from the most successful Gachapon games and don't be too stingy with the characters that you can get. The most mm-hmm. successful Gachapon games actually give away a lot for free. Yes. Because you get that's how you get people hooked in is you give them really cool characters, they feel invested, then they want to keep playing. And that makes them, uh, in a way that's kind of counterintuitive, but interesting, is once they're, like, invested, then they want to just keep spending more. So the more free stuff you give them, the more money they spend, interestingly. Yeah, and um, that was actually something that happened a lot with uh, when I, back when I reviewed um, with, uh, mobile games. I actually did some mock reviews as well for uh, Korean uh, MMOs that came over here on mobile. And uh, what they would do is they would just, they were actually really super generous with um, giving you early in the game some really good stuff, like some really good hard currency, some decent equipment. And of course, they cut off the gravy train pretty, you know, pretty fast. But the point is, they do kind of load you up with the good stuff early on, so you keep on playing. Yeah, the best Gachapon games have constant events where mm-hmm. you're earning stuff, You the, the it feels very vibrant in that respect. Uh, they're constantly coming up with new and interesting things. They have really strong holiday events, like yes. um, come summer and Christmas and everything, where they give away tons of free stuff, and that can really keep people playing and feeling invested in the game. And then also, of course, the game itself really matters as well. If the game is really stale and just kind of based on constant grinding, people will get bored pretty fast. I, I can think of a lot of games that just kind of dropped off of, but that was usually the reason, just... Uh if they're just not fun to play, then it doesn't matter how much cool stuff you have, you know? Yeah, Fire Emblem Heroes has a lot of content, and a lot of it is very boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's probably why I tend to, like, kind of get back on it, then fall off again. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of just really rote stuff where you're just playing for the sake of playing. And mm-hmm. the stuff that's actually challenging is so unbalanced and annoying. And basically... Exactly forces you to come up with really cheap combos or be super powered up uh, from a gasha standpoint or you watch one of the zillion free-to-play guides where people say and then you use this one character always that you can get for free and if you picked the wrong character as your free starting character well sorry you're out of luck (laughs) you lose start over (laughs) anyway pokemon masters is coming out relatively soon i'm sure it'll make 11 billion 11 billion dollars for uh for Game Freak and DNA, and good for them, I gotta say. Yeah, um, I have to say, just going by that anime clip they gave us, I'm pretty sure they have, they know what they're doing in terms of fan service. It'll do better than Harry Potter, which is not good. <laughs> it's not a good game. It's not doing well either, I hear. I hear that made like a fraction of Pokemon uh, Go's money when uh, surprise, Pokemon Go Surprise, surprise. Everybody really was hoping that it'd be like huge, and they uh-huh. screwed up the biggest thing. They screwed up the sorting. How do you not have sorting? That was, when you told me that, I was like, how do you not have that? That's the whole point of Harry Potter. Like, everyone, like, likes to talk about what house they'd be sorted into, what house they'd want to be sorted into, and you just kind of don't have that. You you choose your house, don't you? Yeah, you choose it immediately. And you just, it's just kind of a pin on your profile, and that's it. Right. So you don't even have, like, say, battles versus, like, your, your rival houses? Nope. 
There's no competitions, no anything. And they said that it's ostensibly because you're working together, which is so wrong-headed. I, I can't even believe it. Like in Pokemon Go, yeah, you're on different teams. That doesn't preclude you from playing with other people in raids. There's still a competitive element as well. And oh, of course. Uh, the amount of shit-talking when uh, one team takes over your particular neighborhood is great, you know? In San Francisco, oh. I don't know why. Team Instinct ru- rules, rules everything. But, I mean, could you imagine? Okay, just imagine if they had houses where uh-huh. people were getting sorted and everything and it was actual competitions and then they released stats showing which houses owned which states. That'd be crazy. See, that that's exactly the kind of thing you'd want to get engaged with because people, y- even though teams aren't a huge part of Pokemon Go, they're they're still there. Everyone talks about like, you know, you know, instinct versus well, instinct kind of sits in the middle, but like, you know, mystic versus valor and it's it's so much fun you have the characters who represent each each uh, team. I'm I'm really I'm really shocked that it took them this long to give us a subpar product. Yeah. Well, I think that's what happens. Uh, somebody, I think it was Kyle Orland from Ars Technica was speculating that it was a too many cooks situation where you just mm. have too many stakeholders who um have ideas about how the game should look and should be going. And in the meantime, like Pokemon, you know, they still know how to really make games, right? And people like Masuda were heavily involved in the creation of Pokemon Go. And then, of course, Pokemon Go just has systemic advantages. Catching Pokemon is a great hook. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just uh, getting that rare Pokemon. And, of course, you have the community days where people hang out and they get... uh, you know, there's like swarms of the that one particular Pokemon they need, and yeah, it's you're right. It's just a great hook. It's you throw a Pokeball at a Pokemon you find in the real world. What is more, you know, quote unquote natural than that? Yeah, and then it's there are other cool things like I just finished evolving a Salamence, uh, which was from a Bagon that I caught in Madrid. I have a shiny Dragonite, right? I mean, yes, you have exactly. these Pokemon that you're super proud of and are kind of your signature Pokemon. And that is the hook that, like, keeps me coming back. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I mean, I just finally evolved a, uh, what was it, a, a, a Blissey from a uh, Chansey I think I hatched from you, actually. Yeah, and then the collecting aspect is really strong as well. It's really cool to finish off the Kanto Pokedex or to get certain legendary Pokemon that are hard to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes the events much more interesting. In Harry Potter, like, yeah, they have a collecting aspect, but it's a very boring collecting aspect because you're just finishing off these dioramas, and it's like, who cares? <laughs> That's a, that'd be a great hook line right there. Harry Potter, who cares? I think there are some things that it does right. Like, I think the, the spell duels and the raids are kind of fun, and maybe hardcore Harry Potter fans will have fun doing that. But as it is, the moment-to-moment gameplay of Harry Potter is just really tedious. That's really too bad. Um, I was I was actually looking forward to that. Then when it came out and everyone was saying, oh, this is just so blah. Because you're not the only one saying, oh, it's kind of boring. Uh, I was like, oh, well, I guess when it comes to Canada, I'll ignore it. <laughs> anyway, I don't know how we got over to Harry Potter from Pokemon. But I, I mean, I suppose Harry Potter and Pokemon Go are always going to be tied at the hip. And all I can see is that all of the people who enjoyed Pokemon Go are just going back to Pokemon Go now after trying Harry Potter for about five minutes. Yeah, that's uh, that's a little too bad. Oh, it's been such a giant bust for in terms of traffic in uh, the gamer network. I can tell you that. Yeah, much. <laughs> yeah, we don't. It's, it's like I think our we have like Pokemon Go track, uh, Pokemon Go guys that still do great traffic, and I think the Harry Potter guys just fell right off a cliff. 
Well, they never got they never even got started. Yeesh, yeah. that's bad. All right, let's talk about games that are actually good. Let's talk about mm-hmm. Final Fantasy VII. Yes, that's a good game. So I hear. So I have a new Final Fantasy VII update. Last time I managed to get across the ocean, I was kind of ragging on how stupid Heidegger is because he is kind of a dope. Yeah, he's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, there were a lot of other things, but yeah. So now I'm on to the Golden Saucer, Nadia. Yay! I love the Gold Saucer. So we were briefly talking about how weird it is that uh, Corel, or was it North Corel? North Corel, yes. Right below the Golden Saucer, and what a jarring juxtaposition that is, and yes. why the heck is the functional, the world's equivalent of Disney World attached to a burned-out mining town? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think from a reality standpoint, it's very weird. But Mm -hmm. from the world, I think the point is to highlight the dissonance of the people who are suffering versus the glittering richness of the people who actually have money. Yeah, uh, that does stand to reason, although you already kind of have that metaphor going on with uh, Midgar in itself, the people who live on the top of the plate versus the people who live below it. But I guess Final Fantasy is nothing if it's not subtle. Well, I mean, it's driving home the point even harder, Right. Right. You have this giant, amazing amusement park where they charge you 3,000 gil to even get in the door and charge you points to use the save point, which is a very (laughs) Disney-esque touch, I gotta say. Isn't that great? That makes me so angry, but I'm so, like, I have to applaud them for it at the same time because it's so real. Hilarious trolling, I gotta say. It is. But you get on the, you get on the, uh, the gondola heading up to the, to the Golden Saucer and the cutscene heading into it is so great. It does such an amazing job of setting the scene. Yeah, you really feel like you're heading into kind of future Disney World. Yeah, you do. You kind of see like, oh gosh, you see the the Chocobo racetrack and the fireworks and the just, you know, the roller coaster. And uh, yeah, they really you kind of let you know you're in for a good time. And I actually like to hang around the, the arcade and play all the stupid mini games. So yeah. Yeah, you and everybody else, it feels like a very late 90s Japanese arcade, doesn't it? It does, yeah, back in the glory days. No, those days are washed up. All I wanted to do was play the snowboard game again, but I guess I can't do that until I unlock it later. Yeah, I think you can do it uh, when you reach the, this probably the second CD, quote-unquote, since I don't really have CDs, but yeah. I tried the bike game again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I used to really enjoy that game, but I don't think it's very good anymore. It's really simple. <laughs> yeah, I used to be very good at it. And um, now that I play it as an adult, I'm like, oh, God, I must have had nothing better to do, which I probably didn't. So that got, I made sure I got really good at the game. But yeah, I used to play that. I used to play the snowboarding game. I used to ignore the submarine game because I still don't know what the hell that thing wants from me. I think it's back. I think the bike game is for, back for remake. It is. I have seen, you can see it in the trailer, like it just like brief clips of it where uh you can see there's like command input so i'm guessing uh they moved it like it's no longer at the at the uh, tail end of the midgar sequence it looks like instead it's at the beginning of the of the mission where you go to blow up the second reactor and you're kind of going through that long underground tunnel and it looks like the bikes are involved this time and uh, i think jesse's riding with cloud so mm. yeah that would be early in the game can i just say how sad it is that the entire avalanche crew died uh oh shit you're right yeah yeah I, yeah I it's like right. a moment that you don't really notice because you're busy running up to the top of the tower to stop the plate being 
falling from falling, but they're all laying dying on the the staircase. It's really sad, actually, because first of all, uh, I think it's Wedge who just straight up falls off the top of the plate and he just kind of lies there dying. And uh, he kind of like he has like nice words for Cloud, which is kind of nice because Cloud treats him like a dick up until that point. Well, he says, thank you for talking to me or thank you for yeah. noticing me. Yeah, it's really sad. And of course, Jesse is like, you know, she had a crush on Cloud. And, and she uh, feels intense guilt about bombing things. Yeah, she, she's like, whoops, I shouldn't have killed all those people. I'm really sorry. She's feeling the karmic justice of accidentally built, making the bomb too strong and taking out uh, civilians, which I thought was really interesting. It makes me wonder, actually, if it ties back to... Uh, there's a famous story that when America was doing nuclear bomb testing in the 1950s uh, at the mm-hmm. Bikini Atoll, they accidentally made the nuclear bomb too strong and caught a unlucky uh, Japanese fishing boat, I believe called the Lucky Dragon, uh, in the blast. Right. And it yeah. ended up, the, the fishermen ended up suffering, you know, fallout sickness and everything like that. And it was yeah. a big part of Godzilla. So I don't know if they were explicitly referencing that, but it made me think of that aspect of it. That's an interesting point because, yeah, I know the story about the Lucky Dragon, but I never really connected the two, but I suppose that's possible. So when I was going through the minigames, I did play a very boring Moogle minigame where you're trying to help <laughs> the Moogle learn how to fly. <laughs> that's a stupid minigame. Uh, thank God the, that, um, I don't know if you bothered to do this, but uh, you can put the uh, you know three times faster uh, option on and just kind of bomb through that. I finally discovered that how how you were supposed to be able to do that, and so now I'm rolling through the the summoning animations and everything really fast. Yeah, because they're they're cool. They're still kind of cool to watch for the first time, but after that, it's like ah, you know what? Although I still watch Bahamut Zero every single time because that's so freaking awesome. I mean, it looks cool when it's going fast. <laughs> you got Yakety Sax Final Fantasy VII Edition. The the Mog thing was very cute. Um, another thing that was really cute was the haunted house in the Golden oh, Saucer. That's great. The little, like, isn't the innkeeper like a, a hanged man who drops from the ceiling? Yes, it's so cute. I love that's it. It's adorable. It's horrible, but cute. I love it. Oh, there are so many amazing touches in this game where it's just like, wow, they really went all out with the interesting locations and such. Did you um, do the date yet? I have not done the date yet. I think you have oh, to come back later and come do the back date, to right? that. Okay. Yeah, oh, I, wonder, I wonder who you'll get. Yeah, so uh, here's the thing that's really dark. Uh, <laughs> there's a mass shooting at the Golden Saucer. Yeah, this is another instance where I looked back on this game as an adult and say, oh, shit. Um, so, yeah, that's a thing that happens. Yeah, this game came out in 1997, and certainly there had been acts of mass violence at that point. I mean, there's the famous example of somebody being at the top of the tower in texas with a sniper rifle um right i think there had been some school shootings in the 90s by this point but we were still a couple way years away from columbine which obviously sent a, a gigantic shockwave through everything yes. and yes. it's only gotten worse since then uh dying going on a shooting rampage through the golden saucer would not be a thing that you will be seeing in remake and if they do it'll be like whoa okay <laughs> yeah especially since dine um who i'm sure you'll talk about in a minute he is supposed to be kind of sympathetic towards the end of your encounter with him yeah well his whole thing was i've got, i went on a shooting rampage because um i lost my entire life and i'm real sad 
Why did he pick that particular moment to go on a shooting rampage, though? I don't remember if that was ever explained and how he just kind of went up and down the gold saucer like he owns the damn place, which I guess he does in a way. I have no idea. <laughs> because RPG logic, that's why, I guess. Because it was convenient for the story? Yeah, because they could blame the massacre on uh, Barrett. Yeah, exactly. There you go. The, a man with a gun is going crazy and shooting everybody, and he has the perfect reason to do so because he's real sad about having been in Corel and being totally rejected and having to remember his very tragic past. Uh, yeah, and also if you want to talk another, uh, oh boy, weren't the 90s-something moment, just uh, the idea that a man with a, a gun on his arm, Barrett in particular, can just kind of get into Disneyland without going through any sort of security <laughs> procedures whatsoever. <laughs> Come on in, I, sir. I really don't want to get blasé about this, and I say this with the utmost respect toward the, the victims of this, but honestly, seeing the scenes in the Golden Saucer made me think about the what happened in Vegas a, a year or two ago. Yeah. Oh, you're right. That's uh, There is kind of a, a parallel there. Obviously not an intentional one, but yeah. Oof. Anyway, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but it really like hit me really hard when i was seeing these moments in final fantasy 7 like wow times sure have changed yeah yeah it is definitely the kind of game that makes you look back and say wow and at the same time you kind of hope things there are certain things that stay the same like the whole you know the whole uh message about corporations being pretty bad for the environment <laughs> yeah I'm, i i mean certainly that aspect of the game really holds up and stands out extremely strongly the the eco, the environmental aspects of it mm -hmm. i wonder if they're going to have a direct reference to global climate change i don't know i'm really interested to see where they go with this because something i wrote about in one of my analysis of the trailer was just how in the 90s, we we were, you know, pandered a lot about the environment. Uh, I remember people coming into our schools and talking about, like, you know, the importance of recycling and don't pollute and, you know, turn off the, the lights when you use them. And just, I don't know, I feel like even though, even in the 90s, it was just such a eye-rolling, okay, whatever you say, mom thing. And, like, I said is, what I said was, now environmental messages, they're not about Captain Planet and the Planeteers anymore. There is a very serious threat to our very existence. Yeah, it's funny. I was just listening to the What a Cartoon episode for Captain Planet. Oh, like, just the other day, actually. Uh -huh. And what hit me was, I, I think that Captain Planet was fundamentally sound in wanting to promote environmentalism, but it's tinged with that 90s optimism of, well, I mean, we've fixed all of these problems. We just need to clean up the planet. And, you know, it's fine. Otherwise, and now it actually feels like a situation where the you know, the human race or, like, our modern society is in dire danger, right? So Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, so once again, um, I think the themes of Final Fantasy VII have the potential to hit really hard, um, especially if uh, Square Enix carries it off properly in the remake. Yeah, that's what I'm really, really hoping for it because it's just, you know, it's, like I said, it's not Saturday morning stuff anymore. This is, this is pretty serious. Anyway, Barrett gets blamed for the mass shooting in the Golden Saucer, and everybody gets thrown into a desert prison, which seemed to be a little bit of a thing for Square Enix at the time, because they yes. have another desert prison in Final Fantasy VIII as well. I gotta say, Nadia, I always hated prison scenes in video games. Do you, I actually really like, uh, I understand where you're coming from, but I, I like the Corel sequence and the just how 
how interestingly the uh, you know that whole area is rendered because I'm not mistaken. One thing I didn't realize until uh, I played, I'd recently replayed the game is that that whole prison is basically built on the ruins of the original Corel uh, that was turned into uh, basically a wasteland by Shinra. And in fact, the area where you meet Barrett, you know, you chase him down through the prison, you find him again, and you talk to him and say, "Hey, what's up?" And he tells you the whole deal with Don and everything like that. I didn't realize until very recently that when he tells you that story, he is sitting in his old house. Like, he is telling you it in his old house. Like, that's just, that's pretty cool. I didn't actually realize that, but that makes yeah. a lot of sense. And yeah, because they, uh, they have a flashback where uh, he's, uh, Scarlet's trying to sell them all, you know, ditch coal and, hey, get this cool Mako power. And, you know, they're all sitting there in, I, I'm guessing it's Barrett's house, and everything's kind of restored. So, yeah, we get we get flashbacks to... Uh, what happened to Corel and everything, and once again drives home just how freaking evil Shinra is. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, they're 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 pretty bad in in this sequence, and uh, they just uh, well, you can you can kind of explain what happens. Yeah, so they show up to Corel and basically say, "Give up your way of life with mining coal. We're going to build a Mako reactor. We guarantee that you will all have jobs." Mm-hmm. And Dine is against it, and Barrett is all for it. And the, they, I find, again, another moment that is really interesting in this day and age. We have Barrett saying, look, coal is gone. Like, coal is not a thing anymore. We're losing mm-hmm. our livelihood, whatever. We have to grab on to this one shred of hope. And then they do. Shinra just decides to burn the town. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's pr- first of all. Speaking of environmental message, how how is like, hey, good old coal for an environmental message for you? Uh, I'm guessing Mako is kind of supposed to be almost like a nuclear uh, alternative, I suppose, which of course comes with its own environmental problems. But uh, yeah, I think what happens was there's an explosion at the at the uh, reactor right. that they build, and they blame it on uh, the town for whatever reason and burn it. They assume that the members of Corel are secretly mounting a resistance and decide to purge yes. them. Yes. Which is actually a really harrowing sequence um, when you see the town burning and everything and you see the soldiers running around shooting everybody. Like, I mean, you can see why Dine is a little messed up in the head, right? Yeah, he, he definitely has reason to be messed up in the head. I'll, I'll give him that. But getting back to the, the messages now, I mean, we compared Corel to West Virginia and such. And obviously, one of the, the big underlying narratives of the past few years in the U.S. has been how there is a certain segment of the American populace who have just been left behind in the mm-hmm. rapid rush toward whatever, you know, uh, automa- uh, automation or uh, the search for alternative energy sources or the move away from coal and whatnot. And these towns are actually dying and such. And so... I, I won't deny that, again, it hits hard when you see them talking about whether or not they're going to lose their way of life and trying mm-hmm. to cling on to anything they possibly can. And when they do grab, decide to go to Shinra because they're desperate, Shinra just turning around and completely screwing them. There, There's actually another game that, that focuses on that really well, and that's um, Night in the Woods. That's another great one to play if you want that whole, like, modernization versus the old ways uh, struggle and kind of framed from the perspective of a millennial who never never really knew the old ways. 
Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it Andrew Yang in the Democratic uh, presidential camp uh, primaries who's all about the no automation party? Uh, possibly. I haven't been paying attention to that. You're not following the American presidential election, Nadia, even no, though you're I'm in really Canada? Sorry. These are the I most en- important elections in the world. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have enough trouble trying to follow the Canadian election. We, we only have these political ads for like a few months, and I already want to kill myself. I don't know how you guys do it for a month, for a year. Anyway, I promise I won't stick on to this too, too much, but there's at least one candidate who has who is basically a single-issue candidate, and he is railing against automation, which he considers to be one of the great impending disasters for uh, the American economy because so many people, he says, are going to end up losing jobs to robots effectively, which oh, already yeah, happened yeah. in the 80s, but it's going to happen even more so soon. So, Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, look at how money – like if you go to any grocery store now, you'll, you'll find like the kiosks everywhere instead of the cashiers. Anyway, contextualizing Final Fantasy VII within the current moment is not super easy because obviously uh, Mako is kind of its own thing. I mean, you're comparing it to nuclear energy, but it's, I mean, it's literally draining the energy of the planet, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think when when I think about it, I think about how like, uh, even though nuclear energy has its you know, its benefits and its drawbacks. A big, huge drawback is the the waste it leaves behind and how that's essentially, like, extremely toxic. But I do think that there is a comparison to be made with uh, the people of Corel who are just living in the ruins uh, with absolutely nothing left and the entire world has moved on. And the sight of the Golden Saucer being above Corel, it's, even if it's, it comes off as a little ridiculous, it's also powerful imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that now. Yeah, our entertainment culture uh, put up against the just the utter ruin that uh, a lot of the people are feeling. Uh, moving on. <laughs> uh, so you're in the prison and you kind of just got to wander around, which I did. Um, and I don't think I talked to enough people. I suppose I think I was supposed to talk to more people. Uh-huh. But I just kind of ended up going the right way without really realizing it. <laughs> you stumbled into the right path. Yeah, I just kind of moved into the desert area. And then I found another person who was dead because Dine is really on a rampage here. Yeah, he's really pissed off. Yep. And you find Dine and he goes on a big rant um, and uh, against Barrett. And he has to fight Barrett one-on-one which is always uh-huh. the most fun game, uh, type of battle in a party-based RPG. And I just want to point out that this was literally the first scene I ever saw in Final Fantasy VII was the battle against Dine. How do you manage that? Well, a friend of mine had Final Fantasy VII, and I went uh-huh. to visit them once, and I saw their brother playing Final Fantasy VII, and that was the scene that they were on. And I don't wow. know why, but that is always stuck in my head. I think it's because, and then right after that, you know, you're doing the chocobo races. And so I, that was the first time I saw the chocobo races. It's actually, um, it is a pretty, I think it's a well-rendered scene. Like the, I always remember the the cliff that Dine is standing on. You just kind of have that like sun dappled area that's shining with the sun shining through like wrecked cars and just junk. Cause of course there's just junk and trash everywhere. And he's kind of shooting off at nothing. Dine is actually kind of hard. He, yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a real uh, so-and-so, especially if you don't go in prepared, which is very possible because I don't use Barrett regularly, but I knew with the latest playthrough I did, okay, I, I should probably equip some, uh, some cure materia. 
Yeah, I thankfully, I mean, it, the game says you got to use Barret now. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll just equip some materia. And luckily, I was smart enough to equip the poison materia. Oh, and, good idea. Which really helps against dying, actually. And I had also given him a summon and some other pretty good abilities. And uh, so when I was fighting dying, he actually killed me the first time because he does hit pretty hard. I mean, he has this S-mine ability, which does a fair amount of damage. And he also hits you with a bunch of other abilities, and he moves quite a bit faster than Barrett. So mm-hmm. I was able to get off a few limit breaks and a summon and such, but I accidentally did not use my high potions fast enough and I ended up dying. So I had to come back through the whole scene. And thank God for the times three speed up, I gotta say. <laughs> yes, that is, a, that is like a, a godsend right there. Because um, you have to go through his entire like little rant, and you're like, oh my God, okay, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the one particularly disturbing part of his rant, though, is, is um, this is another thing I missed the first time I played it. He mentions to Barrett, like, it, originally it seems like when he hears, oh, his, his daughter, because Marlene is his daughter. Uh, when he hears Marlene is alive, he's like, you think, okay, he's going to have a change of heart. He's going to say, I'm so sorry, blah, 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 blah. And Barrett's like, let's go see her together. And Dine says, I have to see her so I can kill her and send her to her mother. And it's just like, holy shit, that's kind of hardcore right there. That's that's really disturbing. But this game that's gets actually dark. Like, it, it, really it is very dark. dark. Yeah. And that's that's why they fight. Obviously, is because it's like, well, you're not gonna, you're you're freaking crazy. You're not gonna kill Marlene. I did take him down on my second opportunity. And Dying died. Uh, he was cool with his gun on the arm. I like that they both decided to graft a gun on their arm. But yeah, yeah. just by coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I also like that they had to show the origin of the gun on Barrett's arm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shoot, I'm really interested to see how this whole scene goes down when the remake comes out. There are a million scenes that will be way more interesting. I almost feel like we should do a feature, like, every single, like, crazy scene uh, that Final Fantasy VII Remake needs to account for. Yeah, that's one of them, definitely. That was, I still like the, even though the fight's a bitch, like, I still like that whole sequence so after that you go and do the chocobo races to be able to leave the gold saucer which also took a few opportunities it reminded me a little bit of mario kart actually <laughs> i love the chocobo races i just I, I did the hell out of the chocobo races when i first played uh i like that they introduce you to this little mini game which has a huge effect on the rest of the game because correct me if i'm wrong the chocobo races are fairly integral to chocobo breeding am i right Yes, you. Uh, there's a whole thing about it, but if you if you want good chocobos and you want to get that golden chocobo or even like you know better, uh, you know green, black, blue chocobos, you need to race them a little bit to get their their stats up. So after I got through that, I was able to get my hover car, and I was kind of driving around. I found a ruined reactor, and uh, I think we saw our first mention of huge materia, which appears to be something that will be important going forward. Yes, uh, that whole area is actually quite easy to miss uh, if you don't know where you're going. I know that I have missed it in the past. Uh, that whole area actually has my favorite enemy in the game, which is just a big-ass triceratops with tank treads. <laughs> <laughs> yes, why does it have wheels? I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but I love it. My, I thought, okay, maybe this is an indication that these animals have been horribly mutated by Mako because the explosion maybe caused a leakage or something that's the only place you see this triceratops do you think they'll come back and remake i hope so they damn well better this game's getting a zero to five for me do you think the house will try and kill you like it does in midgar what is with that house 
Why does the house hate you so much? I don't. It's from hell. It says hell house right there. But I guess like I didn't. I just didn't do anything to it. And it just wants to try to kill me. I'm just trying to get to Walmart. I hope they at least have a reference to it because it's just too crazy. I love. I love enemies like that because you can tell it's just like uh, you know what? What can we put together with as few polygons as possible? That's <laughs> a house. But yeah, you so you see a scene with the the huge materia and a character named Scarlet who is a new villain. I feel like I'm mid-season now in Final Fantasy 7 cuz I co- I compared it to an anime. <laughs> We're starting up a whole new arc right now. You are. Yes. With the new Once villain. You- yep, and the Turks are back and I'm actually fighting them and I love that they're shipping different character yes. different people <laughs> in your party. Yeah, that was pretty hilarious. That's uh, you, when you kind of come across them, they're talking about who is like going out with who, and it's it's pretty funny. That's uh, Rude and Reno, I think. That 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 sequence had some pretty hilarious, pretty hilarious meta element because I'm sure that, I mean, obviously there has to be a huge shipping community around Final Fantasy VII. Oh God, is there ever? <laughs> oh, what's the what's the one true pairing with Cloud? Is it uh, who who is it? Sephiroth. Oh, I mean, duh. Okay, I'm, I'm stupid. <laughs> That's oh. what I get for not following the shipping community, you know. I think it's. I think it might be pretty split down the middle between Tifa and Eris. You, you definitely have uh, people who are willing to go to war over this. We're in the process of submitting panels for packs, and one of the ideas that you had was gamers be thirsty, explore, exploring <laughs> thirsty. sexy game memes. Is uh, Cloud Sephiroth uh, a big one? I would think so. Cloud Sephiroth is a very important one too, because that's like we're talking about like when the internet was just becoming a thing. People you know kind of making communities around whatever they could at the time and that that ha- that was a big one that's a formative one i think oh yeah <laughs> but yeah so you get to fight the turks again and this time they actually do fight and it's rude and i believe reno and reno's like i'm back i'm yeah. gonna get my revenge you know like <laughs> and i think i selected what who who are you and you're like you're a jerk <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's pretty great i love i also love rude he just he has nothing to say for himself and i love that but I'm up to level two magic now, and I have the summons as well, so I really just mm-hmm. kicked the crap out of them. They didn't have a chance. Yeah, once I get the summons, it, the game breaks a little bit. Uh, and then once I beat them, I do like the way that they exit. Like, Rude runs away, and... Or, sorry, no, Reno runs away, and Rude just kind of, just the sunglasses, saunters away. <laughs> Rude checks his... He checks his watch. Yes. And then he, he, he adjusts his sunglasses and just turns around and slowly saunters away. He does not care. Yeah, Rude slips out of frame. I think that's really great. Yes. <laughs> He's amazing. He's the best Turk by far. So that is where I am up to as of my most recent playthrough. We hit some pretty dark topics in this one. I mean, I'm constantly taken aback by Final Fantasy VII. They, they in many ways, did not pull punches. And a lot mm-hmm. of things uh, from that game that I didn't really think about at the time like the mass shooting at the Golden Saucer with Dine, uh, what happened, or the entire story with Corel and such, um, and the parallels to today are actually kind of intense and uh, definitely bear ex- more examination. Yeah, and you're, you're also coming up on one of my favorite parts of the game, so I look forward to talking about that. Ooh. Uh, Hideo Kojima, take notes. Final Fantasy VII might have already beaten you to its examination of what's wrong with America. Oh, man, can you imagine, like, Final Fantasy VII from 97 doing better than Hideo Kojima and Death Stranding? Final Fantasy VII invented the stranding genre back in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a coup. 
All right, folks, we're going to move on to the next segment, which is a review of Bloodstained, so don't go away. All right, we got two reviews to do um, in these next two segments. So we're going to talk about the big one, which is Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, which Nadia reviewed for the site, gave a very positive review, though they're not without caveats, unfortunately. Right. Uh, We touched a little bit on Bloodstained last week. Also, we are going to talk a bit about Slay the Spire before we move on to the mailbag. Okay, so Bloodstained. Here's what you wrote in the notes. Feels great, like a new Egovania. Too bad about the Switch version sucking a bit. So do you want to uh, elaborate on those notes, Nadia? You gotta love it. I'm the best note taker in the world. I'm just playing that out there. Um, Yes, Uh, one thing that I touched on last week, I believe, was um, I talked about how Bloodstained is very much an Egovania game because we have like countless Metroidvanias by this point in time. But to have a game that feels like those old Igavania games, specifically Symphony of the Night and Area of Sorrow, those are much rarer. And it, it's very much a feeling that's hard to explain versus just, you know, feeling it yourself. But if you are a fan of Igarashi's work, then you probably know what I mean. Um, Bloodstained really is quite shameless in how symphony it is. And I can't help but love it for that. You even come across a vampire character named, uh, quote-unquote, uh, O.D., which is short for uh, Orlok's Dracul, and he has, he looks a lot like Alucard. He has the same attack patterns if you manage to fight him, which takes some doing. And he has the same voice actor from Symphony of the Night's uh, original Alucard. So I, I, I just love that the game is full of these little jabs to... Uh, you know, old Symphony of the Night and these, these little love letters. Um, I, I actually love how there's different parallels. Like, you have your underground area, you have your, you, kind of your alchemy lab, your marble areas. Um, it, it's, you even have, like, you know, the kind of, instead of the outer wall, you have a tower that you go up. It, it's generally, like, a, a really good-feeling game. And if you are into uh, Igavania's, I, I absolutely recommend it. But I will say... Maybe keep away from the Switch version for now because it seems to be kind of bad. Yeah, what and, the heck happened uh, with that? I know. I mean, you reported it on it fairly extensively during PAX East, but I'm, I'm honestly yeah. really curious. I I'd love to know what happened myself because yes, I did play the game at PAX East, and I played two versions of the game. I played uh, the Switch version, which was out on the public floor, and I played the uh, the PC version, which was a separate build that was for the press and nobody else. And I remember being surprised at how, like, the Switch version was really bad, but the PC version felt fine. It felt more or less like the finished product. And uh, I actually, you know, kind of asked, hey, what's up with that? Why is there this discrepancy there? And 505 Games representative told me, oh, you know, don't worry, we're, we're, we're going to optimize it. And uh, I said, okay, fine, I'll take your word for it. And um, I think it's a little better than, than what I played, but there's still a lot of the same problems. Um, in particular, when the game is docked, it's just the input lag between pushing the button and the action on screen. It's just, it's practically unplayable. It's horrendous. Um, and there's a lot of slowdown, and it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't look nearly as good, which is fine. You don't expect, 
uh, you don't expect a, a Switch game to look as good as the PlayStation 4 uh, version. Um, you, I expect, you know, uh, fewer effects, a little bit less in the way of lighting. Uh, I don't even mind that much that the Switch version is locked to 30 frames per second. The problem is it drops below that quite a bit from what I have seen of videos of the game. So um, I'm not sure what happened. Uh, they were supposed to optimize it. Clearly uh, <laughs> they didn't. Although two 505 credits, they did say, okay, now we are putting all our efforts into making the Switch version of this game the way that we really want it to run. So maybe they did not have the resources to, to get that done. Uh, I do know that the uh, PlayStation 4 version, which is the one I reviewed, surprise, surprise, um, it does have a f- some problems with kind of w- with hitching and sticking. And I never crashed, thankfully. I never had a hard crash, but I did have moments where I was worried because the game would stop for a few seconds and then go on. So it's not a perfect uh, piece of work by any means. But otherwise, like if as long as you stay away from the Switch version... I definitely give it my my a full recommendation. I'm honestly really look forward to the making of Bloodstained, uh, kind of expose or documentary or whatever. Because while it ultimately came out well, you can really see how much they were scrambling to polish it up as much as possible before it came out. My understanding was that when Pax East happened, the Bloodstained developers, uh, after hearing the negative feedback against the Switch version, uh, quietly decided to give it a little more time, extra time to polish it up. So, um, I mean, clearly it wasn't enough time, but maybe it was in even rougher shape before now. And now they're just like trying to improve it as much as possible. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as bad as the version I played at PAX. So there is that, but um, it's still pretty bad, and I, I wouldn't recommend it uh, until Artplay and 505 come out with some good patches for it. It also continues a really annoying trend, which is the trend of Switch ports of games or Switch versions of games. Uh, the screenshots that are shown in the eShop are usually of other versions, not the Switch version. Oh, I didn't know they did that. That's a little bit... Uh, it's a little, a little sketchy, sneaky. I think. Uh, I think that's very sketchy. I think that happened with Trials Rising. Like, people were pointing mm-hmm. that out. And it also... I mean, Trials Rising on Switch looks significantly worse than its counterparts on PS4 X and Xbox One. It's playable, but it's just... it. Yeah, it doesn't look nearly as good. And then also, uh, the Bloodstained is another one. Like, they were clearly using s- screenshots from another version that looked better. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you can really tell the difference between the versions. Um, for example, the first uh, level, which is like kind of a, a st- that storm-tossed uh, boat in the Xbox slash uh, PS4 version, you get this really interesting kind of a slick rain effect going, you know, sliding off the ship's hull. You don't have that effect in the Switch version. It doesn't look bad the way it is, but it's... You know, it's clearly an effect that the Switch can't manage. And that's going. That's just what's going to happen more and more going forward, yeah, especially once you hit next-gen. Like, third-party or uh, ports are just going to be a total non-starter for the most part, unless they're relatively small. Uh, the mm-hmm. good news is that Switch, all Switch really needs are Nintendo games and the, con- the consistent flood of, like, indies to kind of stay relevant because graphics matter a lot less than they, want mean, uh, than they used to. I just did a a podcast, a mid-year podcast with the uh, Laser Time folks, 
uh, video game mm-hmm. apocalypse. And basically, like two out of the five games on there were meant to be graphical showcases, which was uh, Resident Evil 2 Remake and I guess to a lesser extent Kingdom Hearts 3. And the rest right. of them were like uh, not graphical showcases at all, right? I mean, that just goes to show where you, where we are these days. It's not as much about the graphics anymore. So uh, the Switch no, can handle not. it. It's just a bummer that, um, not to harp on this too much, but that a game that is actually kind of technically unimpressive can't really, like the Switch can't handle it or it wasn't optimized very well for the Switch. Yeah, and I think maybe part of the problem is that the Bloodstained's uh, development, as you say, was was very troubled. Like, it was originally supposed to be for the Wii U, so who knows, maybe they tried maybe porting what they had over from the Wii U to the Switch just, you know, was such a hassle to begin with, and then it, everything kind of went underwent that, like, graphical overhaul to make things a little more impressive looking, and maybe they couldn't manage that on the Switch, who knows. But anyway, talking about the game itself a little bit more, so it has multiple endings, right? Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. Uh, well, I only got one of them so far. <laughs> so uh, the thing is, it's quite a bit like Symphony in that, yes, you have those quote-unquote fake endings, and then, you know, you can work towards the, the better ones if you want. And uh, that's another thing I really like about the game because uh, Symphony had... Um, Symphony kind of gave you hints about what you could do to uh, to get that that good ending. Like, did you have to kill Rector... Well, it was up to you to, to kind of plumb to the depths of the castle and really give it, like, search every inch and find out what the answer was. Uh, because uh, it wasn't going to tell you up front, that's for sure. And uh, I killed Richter. Whoops. <laughs> but then I saved him. <laughs> hey, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I never liked Richter very much. Oh, come on. Richter's great. Actually, in Smash Brothers, do you ever play Smash Brothers? Yes. Do you ever play, do you play as Richter or Simon? I usually use Simon, to be honest with you. He I use is, Richter. He's more my boy. Do you really? He's a, are, are they different? Are they substantially different? I don't remember. No, but one is an anime, anime boy, and one looks like kind of a 80s fantasy hunk. Maybe that's maybe that's my problem. I always had a crush on Simon, and then, like, you know, anime boy comes out of nowhere, and it's like, who are you? I'm not going to like you. I like Simon. I like anime I like boy. I really do. <laughs> he's very much an anime. I guess maybe also, because when I first met him in Symphony, he wasn't really an anime boy. He was a... Uh, he was someone I had no idea who the hell he was, to be honest with you. <laughs> Maybe that was my problem. I like, by the way, that we did a story about this the other day. For the PC version of Bloodstained, they had all mm-hmm. of these portraits that fe- that yes. were featured people who contributed heavily to the uh, to the Kickstarter. And there's yes. a mod to replace them with art from Castlevania, except for the cat. Except for the cat. I'm so glad that they kept the cat. Because um, I, I would have been a- angry if they replaced the cat. I remember seeing that cat in, in the in the opening stages of the game. I'm like, oh, someone gave out their portrait for their cat. And it's a very cute cat, and he has like a he's all dressed up in a nice red coat. There's also a portrait of Igarashi. I don't remember if I found that one. There's got to be, but I do remember the the portrait of Igarashi in Bloodstained: Curse of the Moon, which was the the kind of eight bit precursor they had going on. And that portrait could kill your ass real fast. <laughs> So Symphony of the Night always had relatively light RPG elements. I mean, they certainly had them, right? The yes. weapons and such had stats. Um, you acquired abilities as the game went on. Uh, your character would level up and continually get more powerful. Do they expand on that at all, or do they just stick with it for the most part? Um, I would say they mostly stick with it, and it works out well. Uh, you can collect so many just weapons in this game and upgrade them and... Uh, 
one thing they do that is a little bit different, actually, is you can find ingredients for dishes that you can cook. And when you cook these dishes, you kind of get permanent stat boosts. Uh, it's harder than you think to find the ingredients you need, though. I thought, oh, I can make a pizza uh, in, in medieval Europe or wherever the hell I am. And it turned out to be harder than I thought. <laughs> uh, but you can do that. You can also, uh, of course, collect um, monster skills, which is straight out of Area of Sorrow and one mechanic that I'm really glad to have back because that was always a lot of fun, just using monster skills. Like the one, my favorite is one where you like summon a ghost hound and it just kind of goes skittering across the, the ground like it just heard someone open the, a, a can of dog food <laughs> and it just slaughters everything in its path. Are there any particular standout moments to you uh, through the game that you're like, man, this really made it for me? Uh, I think that the moment that kind of made me say, well, what the hell is that, is uh, there are instances that there's actually like story reason for it where you find like certain foyers are, are drenched in, in blood and have this kind of like fake moon up. And it, it doesn't. It's, it's not a permanent effect. It's only there like in certain occasions. And when it happens, it's like... Yeah, Dan, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> but another thing that's kind of creepy is, um, okay, there's there's two enemies in particular I want to talk about. One is called Nyabon, Nyabon, something like that. It's basically a cat, a giant cat that's from hell. And it's like, it's very cute, except it has devil horns. And um, when I saw that, I said, oh, that's really adorable, even though it's trying to kill me. <laughs> and then there's an enemy called Puppy. And what Puppy is, Puppy is the disembodied head of a Yorkshire Terrier. And it's huge. And it comes right after you. <laughs> and it scared the <laughs> shit out of me. So it sounds like it really continues to have the spirit of the Castlevania games. It really does. It has that sense of humor. Like I already mentioned, um, our kind of Alucard stand-in, Orlok Strakul. What he does is he hangs out in a library. And you can borrow books from this library to kind of get your these stat boosts that are there for as long as you hold on to them. And... It's just hilarious that he's there in a library because, of course, a library was a big thing in Symphony of the Night, and he has the same role. He even has the same, like, hole up below his chair that you can, like, kind of screw with so that you can, you know, kick him from behind and get shit from him. One of the funniest things about this game is that um, there is a particular book he will lend you, and he's like, make sure you return this book. Don't forget about this book. Please bring this book back. And if you don't, he'll basically flag you down later in the game and say, I told you to, that to return that book. And Miriam's like, oops. She just, like, says oops in a totally, like, you know, blasé way. And that's when he gets really pissed off and starts fighting you. And he's, he's like, really, really, really hard. He's basically a secret boss. He's not, like, uh, meant to be fought on, during in the course of the regular story. But just uh, when you fight him, he uses, like, all, like, Alucard's attacks. And it's just a lot of fun. Okay, Nadia, what did you give Bloodstained ultimately? And what was the reason for your score? Uh, I gave it a four to five. And uh, basically because I think it's a great Igarashi game, but I think that its technical problems just held it back a little bit, especially in light of the bug, the 1.02 patch bug, which erased a lot of people's progress because when they upgraded, uh, something something about the, the bug, the patch just caused these, these chests that you needed for permanent story items to open and their contents to disappear. So your only way past it is to essentially restart the game. And I feel like that kind of sucked, especially for early adopters who got the game a little bit earlier than everyone else and were rewarded for it by having their progress erased. 
I'm glad that Bloodstained is good. Yeah, so am I, to be honest. I, I was going into it thinking, uh, because it just all the trouble it was having. And, of course, there's a whole history of certain legacy developers not doing so good with spiritual successors. Money number nine? Yeah, it seems like there have been a lot of letdowns lately. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Anthem is one of the biggest. And two, you know, it looked like Bloodstained was heading down a not-so-great path. And so to have it come out and be, like, solid, uh, I yeah. assume that a ton of work was done behind the scenes, like, and obviously they brought in WayForward to help with the polish and everything. And it seems to have paid off, and I, I'm glad. I'm really glad to see uh, this game getting positive coverage, despite, you know, problems with the Switch version and the bug that you were just describing. Um, ultimately, it feels like a game we can recommend, which is a relief to me, because it feels like there are too many games that we haven't been able to recommend of late. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's uh, it, it's a very it, it's very nice to have a, a, this game, like, mid-year, during this kind of mid-year slump, and uh, just say, hey, this turned out to be pretty good, even though t- it was a long time coming, but here it is, and it, it's it turned out pretty good, so go for it. Yeah, Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, out on all platforms. Go check out our coverage on the U.S. Gamer. Um, And before we wrap up, uh, let's talk a little bit about Slay the Spire, Nadia. It came out last Mm -hmm. month, um, and I ended up reviewing it. I hadn't had a chance to talk about it on the podcast. I mean, you could kind of quibble with uh, whether or not it's quote-unquote RPG, but it certainly has a lot of crossover uh, with the card elements and the stats and everything. Uh, I'm surprised that you're playing it because you're not as much of a CCG person. No, I'm usually not, uh, and especially not a roguelike person, which uh, I know it's not entirely roguelike, but uh, it definitely has certain elements there. But uh, yeah, I just I find it's definitely one of those one more round sort of games, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, if you're not familiar with Slay the Spire, the basic premise is it's a kind of a roguelike where you are climbing to the top of a tower. There are three separate areas with increasingly difficult bosses. And it is what you would call a drafting game in a CCG, where instead of going in Mm -hmm. with a pre-established deck, you are instead given the option from a random set of cards. You choose one or a hand or more if you have the right power-ups. And you put that in your hand and you're building your hand as the game goes. So you're becoming more and more complicated. And uh, there's some interesting little strategies that you should be using that aren't necessarily intuitive. Like a key one is understanding that you need to get rid of some of your cards because you want to have yes. your best power, po- best possible cards coming into your hands somewhat regularly. And another one is uh, understanding your character's archetype and building effectively around that. And lastly, having the mental fortitude <laughs> to not pick up certain <laughs> cards. It's like if you look at the options on hand, being able to say no. None of these cards are good, and I'm not going to fill up my card, my hand with these, and then just being able to move wa- move on. I'll admit, yeah, I, I played Hearthstone for quite a while. I'm not very good at these kinds of games. I, I managed to finish Slay the Spire with all three classes, but yeah, I wish I were a lot better. <laughs> You're definitely doing better than I am. I'm still haven't finished the game with any of the classes, so uh, I'm I'm still working at that. It's okay, Nadia. I don't blame you. It can be pretty intense. It took me. A little bit to figure out how to beat it with the defect which is one of the more esoteric characters but i had to go on the internet and read a whole bunch of 
uh, not even guides, but like Steam Forum type guides because yeah. the regular guides weren't helping super much. <laughs> yeah, I noticed the regular guides, I've looked up a few myself, are, they're, they're very basic tips, which are fine, but uh, it's kind of, it's hard game to give guidance on because the deck element is, is quite random. Sometimes you get handed a, a great deck and sometimes it's like, yeah, hope you like trash. Yeah, I think that you have to really understand what works for each uh, archetype. So mm-hmm. there are three. There's the Ironclad, which is the more traditional of them and hits really hard. And yes. honestly, I can't remember their archetype extremely well. I When I beat the game, I like kick the crap out of the game with Ironclad. <laughs> uh, basically, I think they're just like the, the, the warrior. Like I, I'm playing Ironclad right now because I figure if I'm going to beat the, the game with any of the, the classes, it's going to be that one, first of all. And most of their cards focus around defense and physical attacks and some fire sort of spells. Yeah, I, I think the thing is that I just don't remember what's explicit strategy I used to beat the game with them. I just remember mm-hmm. that when I did beat the game, I beat it almost effortlessly because I had such a strong deck. Um, I think it had something to do with basically I had a relic that allowed me to effectively mulligan away cards that I didn't want. And oh. also I had cards that allowed me to uh, have extremely powerful setup spells immediately for free. Yes, that's another big thing about Ironclad is you do get a lot of those those spells that are like where they can add defense or attack like strength for, for practically nothing, like one or zero uh, skill points. Yeah. And those are really handy. And then uh, there's the Silent, which is much more of a rogue-type deck. And yes. if you've ever played Hearthstone, then rogue is the definite comparison there. And uh, Poison and Cycling Cards is a big one for them. If you play your cards right, as it were, you mm-hmm. can basically be invincible. Um, when I My winning run with the, defa- or with the Silent... I managed to get through the entirety of the final act without losing any health. Wow. Yeah. Because I would I was able to build up armor so fast and have mm-hmm. the armor constantly updating and I wasn't losing armor either because of a certain ability that I ended up taking. <laughs> yes, that, I know that ability. That basically enemies could not even get through armor my armor to uh to my hp and i beat um i beat the final boss without taking any damage wow yeah one thing i'm learning is that defense is every bit as important as offense if not more so in this game yeah i'd say armor is critical i would actually say that you can't necessarily blitz enemies very easily because especially later some enemies just they really hit hard so if you don't have any defense you're in deep trouble yeah, uh, even the first boss of the first spire is uh, just if you don't have if you don't have ways to defend yourself. Like there's different bosses. Of, like, obviously, it kind of cycles through them, but um, all of them do have attacks uh, every couple of turns that are just meant to kill you. There's a mid boss in the first tower that is just a bastard. He's this giant oni kind of looking guy with a big old sword or bat or whatever, and oh, yeah. he hits really hard for the first dungeon and every time you use defense that powers him up even more yes and you're like so so it always feels like you're gonna lose some damage 
Yeah, um, there are a lot of bosses like that who, not just the the fact that they're strong, but they are strong and they can just destroy your status. Like they can destroy your defense, they can destroy your attack and just make your life miserable. Yeah, it's the only way to get past that particular boss. And you definitely want to fight bosses because that's how you get good relics yeah. and good cards. But yeah, like fighting a boss, uh, fighting, fighting that guy, you have to basically blitz him and kill him really fast before he gets uh, he does too much damage to you. Yeah, I, I'm pretty good at that with the Ironclad already. But there are, uh, I think he's one of the bosses or who um, the longer you let it go, the stronger he becomes. So you got to get him down or there's just no defending against him. Pretty much, yeah. And the, the other thing with the Silent is you definitely want to go with Poison. Um, mm-hmm. And ideally, you get this one particular card that once you use it, all enemies will be poisoned every time, or like every turn, so they're always taking tons of damage over time. That's pretty handy to have. Yeah, just a little bit. So ideally, you're constantly doing damage with poison, and you're always getting armor. So effectively, you're invincible, and you're always doing damage. Yeah, um, I haven't played too much as uh, the silent or the defect, and maybe I should switch out a bit, but uh, I'm kind of trying to perfect my run or at least get some sort of a run going with the ironclad so uh i should uh, maybe switch out and see if i can kind of learn something new from a new perspective and the last one is the defect which is interesting so they have these orbs uh you start yes. out with a lightning orb which does just passive damage every single turn uh there are multiple different types of orbs there's a lightning there's plasma which gives you energy which allows you to mm-hmm. use more cards per turn uh, there's the uh, there's the ice one, which is the best one, which gives you armor every single turn. Right. And there's another one. Uh, I forget. It's the black hole one, but I never used that one, so I wasn't sure. But the general idea with that guy is you try and have orbs that are continually cycling, and you can get mm-hmm. and and you want to get rid of your lightning orbs and go with ice orbs. And you're just constantly cycling these orbs. And once you, when you use, uh, when you create a new orb, uh, the previous orb gets used. And yes. that gives you some kind of power. Either it casts uh, like some lightning or it gives you some more armor. And so you're just constantly cycling through uh, these different orbs. And you can get outrageous amounts of armor to be able to survive really, rel- relatively uh, strong hits. And then you use um, abilities like Barrage, which uh, draw do damage, large amounts of damage based on how many orbs you have. And if you do it right, you, you start with initially like three orbs. And you can get right. up to like five and like even like six, seven, eight orbs. And once you get that high, <laughs> it gets really <laughs> kind of ridiculous, actually. Yeah, that does, get, that does sound like it's like a little silly. Um, I actually have only played once with the defect. Yeah. Yeah, he is one of the trickier ones to learn, though. Exactly. Honestly, like, I think probably the Ironclad is the strongest, the Silent is my favorite, and the Defect is the one that maybe I'm the most comfortable with right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, it's funny. You can't really say one is, like, better than the other. They're all very they're all very different, but in, in, and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. Well, once you finish the your initial run with all three characters, or you are able to unlock Ascensions which start piling on uh, basically extra challenges for you to try and finish the game, but also other interesting mechanics. And that's where you start like really hitting the leaderboards um, because right. there are people, because every time you finish an ascension, you move up to the next ascension. And so 
you get up to like two, three, four, five, eventually up to like level 20. Level 20 is really damn hard. <laughs> I would think so. Got it. As it is, just level one is giving me enough trouble. That's the top people who really understand the game well, and I'm never getting that high. I can only imagine just how what you have to do to get that good at the game. You must have to just know exactly how it's going to think. There's some people who just get card games in a way that I don't. Yes. Like deck building, as much as I actually kind of enjoy it, not good at it. I really suck at deck no. building. No, I'm terrible at it. Uh, that's probably one of my biggest problems with Slay the Spire is because I really have to get my head around the idea of discarding cards. I don't need them all. I don't need them all. <laughs> just get rid of those basic attacks. They're not very good. Yeah, I know. They suck. But I'm just like, what if I need it? Yeah, well, you don't. And <laughs> the more cards you can get rid of, the better. And you got to remember to upgrade the cards. And yes. you need to kind of have a strategy for what kind of cards you want to grab. So it's like, okay, these cards are the top uh, top priority. I got to have these for my de- cards mm-hmm. like because these cards are broken or extremely good or very strong. Like, <laughs> yes. The, um, the Ironclad, I seem to recall, they have a card that is called a power, and that means it just gives it a certain ability um, every single turn. And it costs all of your energy, but is extremely freaking good. And you just, once you get that, it's like, oh man, your run is going to be significantly easier, I want to say. <laughs> so, Yeah, uh, I find that generally, and this makes sense, the the better cards cost like basically all your thorns per turn. But it's, the effect is usually meant to be long-lived, so they're worth it. Anyway, it is an extremely smart and good game. And even if you're not necessarily into these kinds of games i think the fact that it's not competitive that it's in fact solo and you're taking Mm -hmm. on like really a variety of interesting characters i think rpg fans would really like slay the spire and i think it is a tremendous get on the nintendo switch it's the kind of game that periodically i'll just be like i don't want to play anything else right now i'm kind of sick of playing final fantasy 7 for a minute i think i'm going to play some slay the spire and then if I get on a good run, I just become completely engrossed in trying to get all the way through Act 3, and which takes, you know, 45 minutes or so, but yeah, it's, it's a great time sink. I really enjoy it. Great podcast game, too. Yeah, it must be. I've been, like, kind of just, uh, I, I, it's a game I like playing while my husband's uh, watching TV or whatever, and just kind of watching alongside him. It's, uh, it's definitely a game where you need to concentrate, but you can concentrate on your own time, your own speed. So I like turn-based games because I can play them while I'm watching uh, well, I'm watching Parks and Rec or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting juxtaposition of uh, entertainment right there. Yeah. I would say that Slay the Spire is probably going to be on uh, my top 10 list at the end of the year. And I yeah. think that it is should be actually getting a lot more attention than it is. Even though it's gotten a fair amount of favorable attention, it's even better than that. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good game very engrossing and you really it is like just to use a cliche you never know what you're going to get when you play it because uh you know ne- you don't know what what hand you're going to be dealt uh we were talking about how it's you know getting rid of cards is so important but it's not like they make it easy to get rid of cards either it's uh it, it's something that can only happen like if you get that option at the very beginning of the game when that weird whale thing gives you a that you know single wish I love the space you whale run. he's great <laughs> he's hilarious there's <laughs> this- his name space whale yeah, there's just this bizarre whale that at the beginning of a run goes, ah, trying again, are you? And then yeah. you can select um, 
a few benefits. Like you can do things like swap out your initial power for a different power. You can get an item in exchange for taking on a curse or something. Or you can just get a flat like plus seven to your HP, which is the one that I almost always take. That kind of thing. Yeah, because uh, there. first of all, he has three eyes. I noticed that the other day. Uh, second of all, that's uh, an interesting thing about the game as well, I find, is that you kind of have to make those trade-offs. Not necessarily with the space whale, but with, uh, there are definitely, like, question mark events where you can get, like, a really, you're offered a, a really good buff or something, but you're also, in exchange, have to take a curse. Uh, like, you know, it can screw with your hand, for example, or, like, you lose permanent hit points, stuff like that. Yeah, but sometimes, like you can weigh the benefits against the drawbacks and go, eh, well, I can live. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's definitely like, uh, no, thank you, cultist. I won't let you bite my neck today. Anyway, Slay the Spire, it's out right now. I really hope that there's expansion soon so that I can have even more characters to play with because I'm not super up on going up to the top of the ascensions now because I feel like I got a really good experience just beating the game with the three initial characters. Mm-hmm. But I want to mine some new characters to try and beat the game with. Yeah, I hope it happens. Okay, let's move on to the mailbag, Nadia. Okay, Nadia, it's time for a little bit of a mea culpa. Last week, we talked about the TurboGrafx-16 slash PC Engine. And uh, one of our main talking points was that despite being a very popular in Japan, uh... It and fairly long-lived by console standards, it was about seven years or so, it didn't Mm -hmm. have as many great RPGs as you would have expected. And uh, we had a bunch of people come out and say, well, you kind of missed out on some of the biggest ones. And there's one series in particular which I would like to address here. And that series is Cosmic Fantasy, which, okay, well... I gotta admit, there are, like, gaps in my RPG knowledge at some points. I never owned a TurboGrafx-16 slash PC Engine, and Cosmic Fantasy, at least in the U.S., was quite obscure. But Cosmic Fantasy 2 did come out here. It was a game from Working Designs, which was Victor Island's uh, company. And it, uh, yeah, it has a little bit of a cult fan base, Nadia. Yeah, um, I feel like now that I know the name, that I know the game if if not just because i'm pretty sure the american version commands a humongous amount of money because it was so obscure to begin with yeah and it only had a run of about two hundred thousand units and it didn't even sell yeah. through all of them in the u.s oh, God. at least yeah right right uh but it was incredibly popular in the u.s or uh, in japan uh, supposedly it had an almost 100% attach rate to the Turbo CD in, over in Japan as an exclusive. Wow. And there was talk about making it a pack-in for the Turbo Duo, but that never happened because in America, right. again, it failed to sell through its allotted uh, shipment. But So yeah, uh, some basic facts about Cosmic Fantasy. There are five of them between 1990 and 1994. It was exclusive to the PC Engine CD. Uh, there was a compilation re-release for Sega CD, among other things. Uh, and it was masterminded by a manga artist named Kazuhiro Ochi. And it was, along with Lunar and Ease, kind of notable for being among the first to have fully animated cutscenes. And golly, Nadia, like, having watched the, the gameplay and everything and seeing a little bit more of this game, I would say that the cutscenes definitely are the standout elements of it. Yeah, um, again, you have that, like, the, that fun little TurboGrafx era of cutscenes. But yeah, it's... Uh... 
it, it, I really feel bad we missed out on this one because yeah, obviously it is a, a not insignificant game series. Yeah, I'd, I think it's definitely a notch below uh, games like Fantasy Star, uh, Dragon mm-hmm. Quest, and Final Fantasy. I think there's a reason that it's not um, at the top of a lot of lists for the turbo graphics. And honestly, when I was doing my research, I did see Cosmic Fantasy, but I, uh, sorry, I glossed over it <laughs> because it didn't look Aww. that impressive. It didn't. Um, now we know. I was like, oh, another Dragon Quest clone. <laughs> <laughs> Because oh that's what no, it kind of is. It's like it has a very kind of Dragon Questy battle system and story by all accounts is not that amazing, though it does have a character who is persistent through many of the many of the games um, and mm-hmm. all the way up to Cosmic Fantasy 4, which uh, ultimately resolves their story, though. In, and they play around with things like time skips and everything it has this wonderful kind of 80s manga look. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a space oh, cat works. flying a starship at some point in Cosmic of Fantasy 3. That sounds like the most, like, anime 80s thing ever. Yeah, but people are pretty into Cosmic Fantasy as, like, one of the kind of dark horse RPG series out there. And be- I-, I guess you could kind of call it, along with Far East of Eden, like, the flagship, one of the flagship series of the uh, of the PC Engine. Yeah, I guess everyone gets one, and uh, that includes the PC Engine. Now I will read uh, ma- letters in which people yell at me for forgetting fa- Cosmic <laughs> Fantasy 2. Uh, Tech314159 says, No mention of Cosmic Fantasy 2. I've got to be one of the three people in North America that love TurboGrafx C- uh, CDRPGs and have a very soft spot in my heart for that game in Dragon Slayer. And James Vargas says, there are actually a great many RPGs released in the PC Engine, but most of them are lost in Western gamers due to the language barrier. Mm-hmm. I counted about 40 just from A to L pages here. This includes RPGs, action RPGs, and dungeon crawlers. Speaking of dungeon crawlers, the TurboGrafx-16 got three Western RPG games, Order of the Griffin, Dungeon Master, and Might and Magic 3. On the oh, on the JRPG front, you didn't mention Exile, Exile 2, and Cosmic Fantasy 2, all translated by Working Designs. The first Legend of Heroes game made it to the States as well. So for the new uber nerdy corrections, but they're worth mentioning. I don't think those are uber nerdy at all. I think that's actually really important. And I'm not afraid to say that I miss the boat here with the PC Engine in doing my research. Um, there was, uh, th- there's way more to this RPG legacy than I first supposed. Yeah, I mean, like it is like it's not something we want to like gloss over obviously it is we're doing the whole like console rpg history it's kind of a and we have a series that we just missed like that and it's such a big one and that's uh yeah we feel bad about that yeah uh sorry hell's black aces wrote a pretty extensive comment like really long i can't even read all of it here but they said the best looking rpg in the system is hudson media works's december 1995 release seya monotagari and earth fantasy stories Graphically, graphically, there are effects like footsteps in snow while snow, rain, snow mm. rains down and parallax scrolling backgrounds in battle. I think the box art of a woman holding her child is simple but rather beautiful. Player class is determined by what family you choose to adopt you after your family dies, trying to get you to a church. Battles occur at a fixed points instead of having random or mapped enemies. There are no levels and you increase in power based on your action in battle. So Final Fantasy II without the grinding? Of course, there was also a Sega Saturn Japan-only port. 
I may have missed it, but I believe you also missed the largest series on the platform, the five Cosmic Fantasy games. The two Z-Boy games guys are probably frothing at the mouth for missing half of the title of the Cosmic Star Heroine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Were they inspired? I I am not actually sure, but I probably, because Cosmic uh, Star Heroine has so many of uh, cutscenes, which was a huge aspect of uh, Cosmic Fantasy, and of course the name. So that's I'm thinking to myself, where do I know that name? And it's like, yeah, okay, Cosmic Star Heroine. Okay. But they talk they touch on a ton of different RPGs that we did not get to, including uh they talk about Dungeon Explorer two is better than Dungeon Explorer One. Uh they talk about the wizardry games making to them, including Might and Magic. Mm. Uh, they talk about a bunch of anime tie-ins, including Record of the Lodos War, Soul Bianca, Princess Minerva, Megami Paradise, Gulliver Boy, KO Beast, and Dragon Half RPGs. There's a game called Last Armageddon, an improved version of the post-apocalyptic you play as a monster's NES game. Uh, it's just actually a fair amount, and a lot of these which I have never heard of. So there you go. Again, Mia Culpa. If you want to go read the entire list, I honestly, it's a really great, and I, like I said, I cannot read all of these on the dang podcast, but you should go check out the show notes from last week's episode because they touch on a lot of them, and uh, I do think that they kind of deserve to do justice. Maybe we should just scrap the last one and just do it again. Well, what, maybe we, what we should do is, like, uh, what I'd really love is, like, okay, all these great RPGs that we missed out on, um, I really hope they come to the, the Turbo Graphics Mini. I know they won't, but I'd love them to. But we got Dungeon Explorer 2. Oh, God. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> we shouldn't write it up. You're right. No, you're right. We'll we'll, we'll definitely give that a try and, and come back and report to y'all. Uh, have you ever like seen the cutscenes for Dragon Slayer? I haven't. Uh, no. Be- okay, make sure you look those up because the English voice acting for them is just sublime. <laughs> I hope that Cosmic Fantasy Two comes to the uh, Turbo Graphics Mini now because of how obscure it is. Yeah, um, I I really want these these games on the Turbo Graphics Mini. In fact, that was the one thing that would get me really interested in the Turbo Graphics Mini was the RPG history I'm missing out on. Yeah, for sure. So, for that, uh, the Blood God is displeased and is raining fire down upon Nadia and myself. We apologize. Yeah, we can do better, and we will do better uh, on the continuation of the console RPG quest, which will be picking up not next episode, but perhaps an episode after that when I get back from my holiday. Yes. But, okay, now that we've taken our medicine, here's one more letter. This is about Final Fantasy VII, and it's about our conversations about the the music. Uh, this is from Heater Hands. Regarding the music talk, I think it's important to not to use all of MIDI with the same brush. Sorry, tar, tar all use of MIDI with the same brush. While it's true that the tool can make for some utterly sub- substandard sounds and compositions that are obviously meant to be performed by an actual orchestra, Nobuo Uematsu put MIDI to much more opposite use on Final Fantasy VII. That's not to say that you're wrong to scoff at some of the instrumentation, though. More than a few pieces are definitely, if not unlistenable, then at least embarrassing and annoying because of the PS1 sound chip's less-than-ideal emulation mm-hmm. of actual instruments. Instruments. See Tifa and Barrett's themes. For the most part, though, Uematsu uses MIDI in a way that does not call undue attention to its deficiency. The Final Fantasy VII score is at its best when it weaves its tinned orchestra or rock instruments in with more unmistakably synthetic sounds, using FX to distort and highlight their ersatz nature. To use some examples from the last first few hours of the game, no one's going to mistake the voice samples and make a reactor for people singing in real time, but their effect is still the perfect kind of uncanny and menacing. I'm sure you swap out the synth uh, arpeggios in the prelude for a real harp, 
but it would lose the unreal sheen that makes it so compelling. Opening, Bombing Mission, isn't as undeniably successful as the two aforementioned pieces, but the interplay between the two amazing electronic sounds and the awkwardly parping MIDI orchestra at least creates a unique, rousing kind of contrast. Given how well the tinned strings in xylophone work in anxiety, though, I'd forgive you for lamenting the fact that Uematsu wasn't able to deploy that same discerning touch across the board. Those woodwinds and Tifa seam are so, so bad, y'all. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what her uh, her theme was. Why don't we drop it in right here and our listeners can hear them for ourselves. Fair point to heat her hands, and I think they do a really good job of eloquently and describing the Final Fantasy VII soundtrack in a way that uh, people who aren't as well equipped to be able to break down and analyze music, i.e. me, uh, was able to do. There is a lot of actual great MIDI synthesis going on in Final Fantasy VII, and some of it not so great, so you take the bad with the good. All right, I think that's it for this episode. Like I said, I won't be here next week, but we'll have a special guest host who will pick an interesting topic to talk about. In the meantime, thanks for joining us for our continued discussion of Final Fantasy VII playthrough and Bloodstained and all that. Again, apologies for not doing TurboGrafx-16 the justice that it deserved. Hopefully we can do a lot better with some of the later consoles. Okay. Axe of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot and Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. Subscribe to the newsletter. Hit us on all of the social channels. We will be back next week, as always, though I won't be. Uh, but until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening and happy adventuring. <laughs>